One of the reasons why I love studying the Arctic is that it is kind of an early warning system for the effects of climate change to lower latitudes. That's Emily Choi, the newest Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence. We're very happy to have her as our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. The sound you're hearing right there is thousands of murres, a seabird nesting high up on the cliffs of Coates Island, a rocky outcrop of land sitting like an undersized cork at the top of Hudson's Bay. I'm thrilled today to be talking with Emily Choi, as well as being the newest RCGS explorer-in-residence. She's also an award-winning researcher based out of McGill University, studying the impacts of climate change in the Arctic with a specific focus on murres. Emily spends her summer researching these fascinating birds, which are something like a cross between a penguin and a puffin, with an incredible ability to swim deep in Arctic waters, hunting for fish. But before we get to our conversation with Emily, this podcast is dropping on Giving Tuesday. And I would love to get your support for Canadian Geographic magazine by making a donation to the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. There's literally no other magazine like Canadian Geographic, not only in Canada, but anywhere in the world. Every issue is packed with award-winning articles and photography about Canada, its people, the land, the environment, and wildlife. And it comes with maps. Who doesn't love maps? I love maps. It's entirely unique, and it needs your help. You can donate by texting the word GIVE to this number, 613-704-5963. Just wait for a text back with instructions. All your donations will be matched by RCGS fellow Ted Meehan and the Ted Meehan Foundation. And Ted, if you're listening out there, thank you so much for doing this. And thanks to all of you for any support you can give to. It's money well spent for a worthy cause. Trust me. And now, on to our interview with Emily Choi. Emily Choi, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here today. I also want to say congratulations, I guess, on a, on a couple of fronts. One, you're the, the newest RCGS Explorer in Residence, so congrats on that. Thanks. And you also have a newborn, I understand, as yeah. well. So uh, thanks. A whole new realm of exploration there. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because it gives me an opportunity to go places and learn about things that I know very little about. And you hit it on two things there, uh, Coates Island and Muirs, which are a seabird and the focus of your research. So I'm wondering if you can just take us to Coates Island. Where is it? Describe it. What are you seeing when you're there? Well, Coates Island is in northern uh, Hudson Bay, none of it. So it's a small island. It's below um, Southampton Island. And so we basically have to reach there. When we do our research, we actually fly a twin otter from Iqaluit to Coates Island. Mm-hmm. We're basically dropped off on the beach. Right next to the beach is a colony of about 30,000 breeding pairs of thick-billed murres. Uh, who spend their summer, summer on Coates Island breeding. Uh, they spend their winter off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. So once we reach uh, the beach of Coates Island, we actually, our, our cabins, our campsite, are actually at the top of the seabird cliffs. Uh, so we actually have to, you know, on the side next to the beach, 
I mean, it's just, it's hilly. It's not very steep. Um, but we actually have to pulley, use a pulley to get all of our equipment to the top of the cliffs um, wow. where we, we, we basically stay. And then from our cabin, if you walk, um, you know, several meters out, you can actually see the, the birds on the cliffs below. And we have this entire kind of ropes course. So we have rock climbers that work with us that set up this course. And we basically have to, you know, sometimes um, kind of belay down um, and uh, to, to work on the, on the, on the birds. So actually belaying down this, how high is this cliff? About 300 meters. It's, it's pretty, pretty high. That's high. Yeah, that's yeah. high. And it's what's below you. Um, so what's below is basically, uh, so there's the birds and then there's basically, oh, like Hudson Bay. So uh, lots Hudson of rocks. Bay. Wow. <laughs> so, so, fear, so fear heights is not one of your fears. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, so I'd love to hear more about the mirrors. And you, you touched on one thing that I found amazing about them is that they, when they migrate south, they migrate to Labrador and Newfoundland. So not, we're not talking about the Gulf of Mexico or South America or anything. These they're. They're, they're wintering in pretty hardy places, I have to say. Yes. So they're, they're a cold adapted bird. So when they, they go and they winter, they, they stay in waters um, around eight degrees Celsius and colder. So they, they, they prefer cold climates. Yeah. So what is it that drew you to, to, to study them as a research focus? Well, I'm really interested. I'm very interested in the impacts of climate change on uh, Arctic marine pe- predators and especially um, marine predators that are highly adapted to Arctic ecosystems. So um, thick-billed mirrors are quite amazing that they are, they're incredible, they incredible flyers. So they, they migrate, obviously, from Newfoundland to Labrador. Um, they spend four hours a day flying um, in order to forage, but they can also dive up to up to 200 meters. So they're incredible di- flyers, but they're also divers. And in birds, flying and diving are an energetic trade-off and it's very difficult to do both. And the perfect example of this is the penguin who mm-hmm. is an amazing diver, but has lost its ability to fly uh, over time. Uh, MERS do both, but as a result, they spend a lot of energy flying. So they're, they're basically designed to dive, but for some reason they can still fly. So they have these huge energy demands, which are quite incredible. That's fascinating. And so can you just like describe them a bit, what they look like? And like, I mean, is there a bird you could compare them to that people might know more? Sure. So they're about, um, you know, just over one kilogram in weight. And they basically look, they look very similar to a penguin. So they're all, they're black. They're, you know, they're black and white. And they, yeah, they're in there about like a one foot high, but they look very similar to, to a penguin, but they can fly. Or a puffin, a really large puffin. <laughs> right, right. Are they the same family as the puffin? Um, so they're alcids. Um, so they're 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 this. So they're yes, they're very similar to to puffins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry for my non-scientific wave. <laughs> <laughs> like I know there's much more precise things in the world where you are in. Um, so tell me, okay, I, I want to get to the impact of climate change, but I just want to describe when you're doing your research and you're belaying down these, on ropes down these cliff faces. I mean, what's that experience like? What, I mean, it's 30,000 birds clinging to the sides of this cliff and nests. What's, what's that like? 
Yeah, no. So it's it's quite amazing. So as part of the daily tasks for monitoring the bird. So first of all, the program is quite amazing because it's been going on for about 30 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, as part of our daily tasks, we each have a kind of a site on the cliffs where we take, you know, eight counts. We, we look to see whether there's new chicks. We look to see, you know, often or always, almost always, the same adults will actually return to the same spot on the cliffs to to lay their nest. So we always, you know, check for new birds. And, you know, on my site, there was there was basically kind of like a, a course, a ropes course to get there. But then there was a spot where I actually had to rappel about 15 meters to get to my spot. And these birds, so this, this program is has been going on for so long that some of these birds are actually used to people. So um, I'm about, you know, when I'm doing my counts, I'm about, you know, sometimes about, you know, a couple feet away from a murder and they are not, not afraid of us. They're quite used to us. And so it's quite amazing. Um, Often there are beluga that swim by our, the island. So there's like a pod of beluga. Like one day we had about 200 beluga just swim by mostly mothers and calves and there's also a, a walrus colony. So interestingly, I, one of the animals that will actually prey opportunistically on the MERS are walrus. Um, wow. And uh, there is a big walrus haul-out near Coates Island where, you know, one day we were we were there and there were about 200 walrus just kind of suntanning, <laughs> like just kind of sleeping in this haul-out. Um, so there's lots of interesting an- uh, animals. Another predator of the birds is uh, polar bears, which will, mm-hmm. it's quite amazing. They'll actually climb parts of the cliffs to get at the birds and eat their eggs. Wow. Yeah. Do you have a good polar bear story for yourself? Uh, I, d- I don't because when I was last there, um, there weren't many, but fortunately we didn't run into that many bears. Um, so yeah. it wasn't a big polar bear year in 2019. We saw a few, but there have there have been incidents with bears, and basically, once I guess once the sea ice, um, you know, melts or breaks up, then they come onto coats and start feeding on the the mers mm-hmm. instead of their typical prey like seals and. Wow! So it sounds like a, a just a, a starkly beautiful place with some incredible wildlife. I'm just wondering. Um, obviously, climate change is a big concern now. And I think anyone who's paying any attention at all knows the Arctic is getting hammered the hardest by climate change and the impact of climate change. Um, so what are you seeing in terms of the myrrh and the impact on them? So we're seeing several effects of climate change on the MERS. Well, first of all, we're very lucky that the Canadian, the Coates Island population is very stable, so it's healthy right Mm -hmm. now. Uh, There's many populations across the Atlantic and Greenland and Iceland that are actually under decline, which is believed to be due to um, environmental change and climate change. Um, But we are finding changes in the MER colony. So over the past 30 years, the the diets of MERS have shifted from about 50% Arctic cod to 50% capelin with the warming of Hudson Bay. And mm-hmm. this shift is actually believed to have caused a decline in chick growth. Um, so mer parents will bring back about one fish at a time to their chicks. And because of the mm-hmm. smaller size of capelin relative to cod, it's believed that this, this change in diet has caused a, sh- a decline in growth rates based on long-term monitoring data. So that's one, that's one effect um, that shifts in the prey. Rising water temperatures is making the cod move away? Or what, do you know what the reason for the shift is? Yes. So Arctic cod is well known to be very sensitive to warming temperatures. 
And they're either, um, you know, we're not sure what's happening to the cod. I mean, they're either, um, you know, moving more northwards, but they are very sensitive to to warming temperatures. But it's also bringing in, you know, more Atlantic species such as capelin, like with the warmer waters into Hudson Bay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's a smaller fish, so not <laughs> ideal, I guess, in some ways. No. Huh. Yeah, and in terms of what you understand from what's going on in Greenland and Iceland in the the drop in the populations, what is the theory behind that? Yes, so yes, definitely climate change, marine ecosystem change, and um, and possibly changes in the diet. But interestingly, um, another uh, aspect of climate change that I'm currently studying is the impacts of heat stress. So Mm. I just had a, a paper published last this summer, um, in which I had done work in 2019 to look at the heat tolerance of MERS, so how sensitive to they are to warming temperatures, and we found that they are one of the most sensitive birds um, to to Arctic warming. And this this work actually stemmed from previous observations that MERS at coats during warm weather warm weather years were dying on their nests due to heat stress. So interestingly, um, MERS are uh, a seabird in which both parents will actually incubate their eggs. So those males and females will spend 12-hour shifts uh, incubating their, their eggs, sometimes in full sun. And then there were reports of MERS dying on their nests. So in terms of the populations in Greenland, what we've heard from our colleagues is that uh, there have been declines on certain sides of the cliff. So um, MERS, they've, they've found that MERS that were in more kind of sunny locations um, were under decline. So there, there, are, there is kind of some suspicion that Arctic warming could be a could be an effect or could be a, a cause to some of the declines, but more work needs to be done to see mm. what, in fact, the declines are are caused by in Greenland. Yeah, and in terms of estimates on temperatures, where it really does become a struggle for them, do you know what that is? Or? Well, um, MERS displayed signs of heat stress in my study is at temperatures as low as twenty one degrees Celsius. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, the temperatures in which the MERS um, died on their nests at Coates were about 21 and 22 degrees. Uh, they wow. were also in, the MERS that were more likely to be affected were also in full sun. So another aspect um, to consider is that they're black and they heat up more quickly. But right. we find that at mild temperatures, they exhibit signs of heat stress. I mean, you've talked about adaptation in terms of switching to the different kinds of food that they eat um, or the type of fish they eat. Are you seeing other forms of adaptation? Another another aspect of the MERS that we are looking at is their use of foraging habitat. And there's a PhD student uh, in my lab named Allison Patterson who's been doing some work on that. So, you know, there is some possibility that the MERS might be changing their, their foraging locations, but, uh, you know, that's, that, that kind of work is still uh, in progress. I mean, this just sounds like this is a big picture solution that we need really to help them. Or isn't it? There's no local solution on Coates Island. This is all of us need to do a better job in cutting down our carbon footprint and that all around the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, MERS and other Arctic species, one of the reasons why I love studying the Arctic is that it is kind of an early warning system for the effects of climate change to, you know, lower latitudes. And, you know, MERS are kind of like a, a, a um, canary in the cold mine for impacts of climate change to potentially uh, more temperate species. And in particular with the heat waves that we've had during the summer, 
um, you know, the, the impacts of heat stress on MERS could be um, potential signs of, of the impacts of climate change and heat on other species uh, in temperate regions across Canada. One of the things I, I love to do when I do these interviews too is just find out where the inspiration came. And I just can you tell me a bit about you know, where you grew up and what were your parents up to when you were a kid? Where was the, the nugget of inspiration, do you think? Um, so I'm from uh, Markham, Ontario, and I grew up, actually I grew up, I spent most of my summers uh, near Lake Simcoe. My, par- my grandparents had a cottage, and so I, mm. I'd spend every summer nice. catching frogs, uh, fishing, you know, I remember catching, you know, garter snakes and uh, northern leopard frogs. And there was always, always, uh, you know, carp to catch. Like, I remember I got really good as a, as a kid <laughs> catching, um, you know, I, I, I could never catch the really real big sports fish like walleye and uh, largemouth bass. But I used to always put bread on my hook and catch carp. And some of them would be you know, it could be like 10, 10 pounds and they get big, all yeah. the, they get big and all the fishermen would, would, they would see when I would haul one in as a kid, they would think I'd had this big sports fish, but it was just a, it was just a carp. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, there was just, you know, I, I just would spend hours and hours just outside during the summer as part of my childhood and just observing, you know, nature, chickadees, mm. but also I had a, actually had a, damselfly hospital so i was interested in dragonflies and damselflies too but oh, just this all this observation really generated kind of a, a real interest in the, the natural world um feeding chipmunks and chickadees and so i developed a, a real love of nature through my grandparents cottage and i knew ever since i was really young that i wanted to be a zoologist and study study animals but i never never thought i'd end up working in the arctic and so it's just, I just had the opportunity to work in the Arctic during my master's. I did a project on Cape Farah, Devon Island, up in the high Arctic, and just was mm-hmm. captivated by the landscape of wildlife and wildlife. You know, I saw Arctic foxes, I saw polar bears there, and I was just, you know, amazed by this, this real, it was kind of a, Cape Fair is kind of an oasis in a polar desert. So again, there's a large seabird colony that deposits a lot of, uh, through their guano, nutrients to the environment. And just below the the seabird cliffs is this are these ponds um, with a lot of, you know, there's there's lemmings, there's saxifrage and lichens. And so there's just a little oasis. Um, and then after my master's, I went on to do a PhD on using and looking at beluga whales as sentinels of mm. environmental change in the Beaufort Sea ecosystem. And I did this work and this work was part of a community-based monitoring program in partnership with communities in the Nuvialuit settlement region. And mm-hmm. so uh, beluga whales are an important traditional food to, uh, well, to many communities in the north. So I, I had the opportunity to work with community members uh, to monitor the impacts of environmental change on the Beaufort Sea belugas. So it was a, an amazing experience. I basically lived at harvester camps and, and learned so much from um, the Inuvialuit community members and elders and, and then and then it just led to my my postdoc on seabirds, but that was kind of my, my amazing. Journey. The belugas are just so beautiful, aren't they? I, I, they're almost like something created by a Disney animator. They just got a permanent grin on their face, and they're sort of round and happy looking. I don't know something very captivating about them from a human perspective, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. I looked at some of the things I studied were um, they 
Beaufort Sea Belugas have an amazing diving ability like MERS. So they can dive mm-hmm. uh, over, some of them can dive over a thousand meters. So they are incredible divers. And uh, yes, they're, they're known as actually the canaries of the sea. So they're, you know, I, I didn't study beluga communication, but they just have this wide array of, of songs and sounds. So they're quite, they're quite amazing. Beautiful. How are they? I mean, how are they adapting? What's the prospects for them? Um, well, uh, so the Beaufort Sea beluga population is currently, again, it's a healthy population, but they are um, facing effects of climate change. So it, with my work, I found that uh, in certain years, the beluga whales had, again, similar to the MERS, had switched their diets to capelin. Uh, their, their main prey, again, is Arctic cod. Arctic cod um, supports many predators across the Arctic. And so I found that during low cod years, the beluga whales were switching to capelin. And uh, I also found, so based on my work with the communities, many of the community members had been telling the scientists that the whales were getting smaller and there had been a, a recent publication um, by a scientist named Lois Harwood that looked that saw that that the the over about 20 years um, beluga inferred growth rate so size at age of the whales was getting smaller over time so the community members were right that they were getting smaller and I had found that uh, this decline in declines in condition the whales uh, could could impact their diving ability or dive physiology mm. and so uh, one of our predictions was that declines in changes in the prey base or declines in Arctic cod could in fact could impact uh, the whale's condition, which would impact their diving, which may further worsen their condition. So it could potentially be a vicious cycle. Mm. What gives you hope when you're doing this kind of research? I mean, obviously you're looking sort of very starkly in the face of climate change. Is there things that you find that give you hope? Yes. So, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed my experience uh, working with community members in the communities in the north. Uh, And in fact, I really enjoyed working with uh, youth, local youth uh, from the community. So all of my research assistants from the Beluga Monitoring Program were from youth from uh, from Taktiyaktuk and Anuvik. And many of them have gone on to, uh, you know, I had one youth who went on to be as now a, an Inuit research advisor for ArcticNet. And so, mm. you know, I think that you know, Arctic research is, uh, you know, it's so important to work with communities in the north. And I, you know, I'm really seeing that there's a lot of uh, local youth or uh, northern youth that are, that are getting involved in, that are currently involved in many of these monitoring programs. And I think that really gives me hope for, <laughs> um, you know, for the Arctic and for combating climate change. I think with these youth, the Arctic is in good hands. That's encouraging to hear. You um, very much embrace your role as a, a black scientist in Canada as well. And I'm just wondering what role you see yourself as having as a black scientist. Well, I think that, you know, as a, a child and a, a young woman growing up and wanting to be a scientist, I really didn't see many scientists that looked like me. And, um, you know, I didn't think I had any science teachers or professors or, you know, all of the people I looked up to, you know, none of them, you know, were very diverse. There weren't many women. And so I think that I have, you know, made it my goal to do a lot of outreach and, you know, work with 
um, youth science youth programs to let youth know that it is possible. This work does exist. There are many different scientists in Arctic research, many of whom look very uh, that are are diverse, and just to encourage you know the next like a diversity of youth and uh, children to take an interest in the Arctic and climate change. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that changing in the course of your career? Yes, I have. Um, in particular, with the 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 move, the recent movements that have that have taken place over the past year. So, um, Black Birders Week. There's been um, Black Mollusks Week, and and also with the groups that I've been a, a part of or, or I've participated in, such as uh, the Canadian Girls in Science, Scientists in Schools. Um, I, I am seeing a an Earth Rangers. There is a rich diversity of youth that are taking an interest in climate change, as well as um, you know Arctic research as well. That's great to hear. So, as the newest RCGS explorer in residence, I, I'm just wondering what what that means to you, or what does it mean to be an explorer in this day and age? Well, I think it's a it's an amazing honor to be a, an explorer in residence. I mean, it's quite uh, incredible to be, you know, I've, I've really had the been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to work um, across the north in in Canada. Uh, so, you know, again, Coates Island, uh, the New Sediment region. I also participated in the Victoria Strait expedition. Um, you know, across the Northwest Passage. And so I've seen a lot of amazing places across the Arctic at a time where it's changing so rapidly. And so I think that, you know, one of the goals as an explorer is to, you know, show Canadians, you know, the Arctic, how beautiful it is before it it changes, (laughs) and to generate an interest uh, in Canadians, in particular youth, to care about the Arctic, why it's important, why it is an early warning system for climate change across the world. My final question is is one that I ask uh, all our guests, and it's, what is your favorite place in Canada? Maybe favorite place to be, to unwind, or place you go to in your mind when you need that happy place? Is there a specific spot that, that sort of is that spot for you? Well, I think that if I, I am... I, um, I need to go to a happy place. I think about my the times I spent on Kendall Island uh, with the families uh, in the north. So it was amazing. Um, you know, during my time there, I participated in many uh, activities with the community members. So I remember uh, every week, or not every week, but once in a while, the communities, when we were at the camps, would organize uh a baseball on one of the islands and they'd radio all the other families to join. And uh, these games would typically start around 11 p.m. at night and go till three in the morning. So, I mean, it was 24 hours of daylight. So um, we would, you know, we'd typically, you know, be out up late playing baseball, but, uh, you know, it was so much fun. So I typically, you know, think back about these moments that I've had at at the camps playing baseball. So Emily, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really lovely. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did like it or just generally enjoyed this podcast and want to help us reach as big an audience as possible, please give us a five-star rating and write a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And thank you. And wherever in the world you're listening, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, 
when we'll explore again. I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that Indian oral history is very strong. And we flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess so.